Podcast. I am Alan Cavana of Fox Sports. Happy to be back. Thank you very much, RJ and RJ Kraft from NASCAR.com for filling in last week. And as always, I am joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, the spectacle and spectacles that made Talladega such a memorable race, raw speed and what it actually means on drafting tracks this year, and we tackle one of the most important discussions in racing, perception versus ability. But first, as always, this is episode 39. David, help me out here. This is the Friday Hassler edition of Positive Regression. Who is Friday Hassler, David? Well, Alan, funny you should ask. (laughs) Chattanooga, Tennessee's Friday Hassler was a NASCAR Cup Series driver. That he, he was a real person. He won at Bristol Motor Speedway in 1971 driving in relief for Charlie Glatzback. This means he got into the car after the race already started. It was Glatzback who is credited for the victory. So uh, no wins on Hassler's record, but he was a short tracker. He won the second ever Snowball Derby in 1969. And uh, over the course of his uh, 133 Cup Series starts, he scored 47 top 10 finishes. Uh, that's a rate of about 35%. But if we pare that down to just his short track starts, he made 58 starts on tracks shorter than a mile, 28 top 10 finishes. So 48% of those starts on short tracks, top 10 finishes, average finish of 10.5 in Cup Series short track races. One of the unsung short trackers of his day, and he drove a uh, bright red, number 39. Uh, sometimes the, the wheels were painted white. Sometimes they were painted gold. You can look on uh, Google Images and see some some pretty nifty-looking pictures. He was also uh, killed in the number 39 yeah. car in his Daytona 500 qualifying race in 1972 at the age of 36. Never saw his peak, but uh, certainly deserves uh, some recognition because this guy had a career and and had some tangible talent. Yes, and sometimes, you know, with these the numbers that we choose early on in these episodes, sometimes we go recent, sometimes we go 90s, and sometimes we dig a little deeper for the Friday Hasslers of the world. Uh, and like you said, David, I, I had to Google, I admit, but the first thing that pops up is a beautiful number 39 car. And uh, thank you, Mr. Hassler, for your contribution to the early days of stock car auto racing. Let's get this episode started, David, with a very memorable race in Talladega. We'll give it a quick review because Ryan Blaney, by six one-thousandths of a second, finds himself below the cut line and wondering how he's going to advance in this playoff to suddenly a guaranteed spot and pretty much worry-free to the end of Phoenix. What a race it was. He ends up spinning on Sunday, winning on Monday. That's a hell of a tagline for any driver. But it also shook up the playoff picture by having Ryan Blaney win in a big way in terms of what could have been, in terms of what is actually the reality now. So, David, the first two races of this round, we have Kyle Larson, first-time winner this season, and Ryan Blaney, first-time winner this season. Now, guaranteed to be in the final eight, what does that mean for the rest of the playoff field? I think it means a potential favorite is not going to be there. Yeah, so just naturally, I think there was 
a pecking order, right? Coming into this round, there were 12 drivers, but there was a, a pretty strong eight. And I will include Kyle Larson in that. I won't include Ryan Blaney in that. Uh, the driver sitting below the cut line right now is Chase Elliott. This is the name that, that pops off the sheet. And Alan, I, I think back to the weekend, he won the pole at Talladega. He led 19 laps. He finished eighth, but this might be the most hollow eighth place finish in the history of eighth place finishes because he scored no stage points. Consider this, Brad Keselowski finished 25th in the race at Talladega and scored three fewer points than Chase Elliott. Uh, And he's uh, comfortably above the cut line. So um, we're going to look back on this. Chase Elliott, uh, the the Dover race, uh, taking one point away from Dover is obviously not the hole that he wanted to be in uh, coming away from the the win on the Charlotte Roval. But this Talladega race for seemingly as good as the weekend went, not good enough right now. And now there's an 18 point deficit. And I, and Alan, I'm wondering if that is just too much to overcome. I think so. In ter- if, if no one has problems, I think it is too much to overcome. Uh, I know it is possible, but we're, we're just going to Kansas where it seems like it's one of those bread and butter tracks. It's not the volatility of the Roval. It's not the volatility potential of a plate track. And, and unless someone has a bad day, like a Joey Logano, that's the closest, right? The, the closest competitor. Uh, unless Joey has a bad day, it's going to be real tough. I mean, even if you just do some amateur math, which I was trying to do in my head, David, is that, I mean, 18 points, what is that? That is two stages and, and, and the final finish of the race, obviously. So if Chase Elliott were to go out there and win both stages in the race, that means Joey Logano has to finish, what, seventh or better in each stage and then seventh or below? I mean, you're asking a lot of Chase Elliott to go out there and assuming he wins both stages and the race. And then Joey Logano having kind of a subpar day of seventh or worse throughout the entire running of the event in Kansas. And that's just, that's his closest opponent. You know what I mean? So unless he goes out there, that's going to be really tough. And I know Chase Elliott getting the win automatically puts him in there, but just walk with me here. You know what I mean? (laughs) If he's going to outpoint some of these guys, it's going to be really tough. 18 points is a big gap. Yeah, it's not mathematically impossible, but what makes me doubt whether it can happen at all is that the six drivers without wins and above the cut line are very good. I think we are at that point in the playoffs. Uh, the staff of The Athletic wrote about this during our roundtable in advance of round two. We all picked drivers who might sneak their way through this round. And in hindsight, I think the correct answer is no one. Because advancement now absolutely has to be earned. And where Elliott sits, you're right. He better win the pole, grab clean air early, and just crush the field. Because outside of that, everybody on this list has either given themselves enough of a cushion or are reliable enough on the moderate intermediates that all they really have to do is show up, fire the engine, not make a mistake, and they're through to the next round. It seems like we're at the point in the playoffs where there is zero room for error, which speaks to the strength and parity of this season's playoff field. 
Alan, consider this. William Byron and Clint Boyer won stages at Talladega, and that alone wasn't enough to earn them safety. In the last round, it would have. This round, not so much. Mm. And let's talk about why Joey Logano has that the lead that he does is because when we talk about stage points and Chase Elliott's bad day, despite a good showing and finish, uh, Joey Logano had nearly the opposite in terms of collecting those stage points, and he had 44 points on the day in Talladega. And if you write that down on the sheet in terms of points scored, Joey Logano finished second. I know the score sheet will say he finished 11th in the race, but I think scoring the second most points out of the day is what teams are looking at. The reality that we have to wrap ourselves around right now is points scored. And Joey Logano finished second in Talladega, and that's why he has the position that he's in. Maybe he was aided by something. What do you think, David? <laughs> Uh, well, well, the, the glasses, he, uh, he certainly got his Johnny, his Johnny Benson on, uh, Talladega. I kind of dug that. I, I, I was texting you. I, I, I said these glasses are something. And we've talked about it before. Performance enhancer. That's what totally I call them, legal, yeah. Totally legal. But if you have a problem with vision and there is a way to correct it, that vision seems pretty important if you are, I don't know, driving race cars for a living. Um, that's smart of him to try. Now, I don't know that the story seems to add up. He just saw a crew guy wearing a pair of glasses and said, hey, let me borrow those. Yeah. That, I don't know about that one. But if if you think about it, uh, he was doing everything in his power just to give himself an advantage, completely legal. I'm down with that. Um, but I want to speak to his ability to score points. I totaled up the points accumulated on all four drafting tracks this year. And by a pretty decent margin, Joey Logano scored the most this season. Hmm. He did not win a race on a drafting track this season. This is something the 22 team has been doing the whole year has been gaming points wherever they can. Um, one of those is the drafting tracks. It's not easy to attain those points. You saw the ends of stages at Talladega, um, very difficult, but it is without a shadow of a doubt, a strong suit. And before, uh, this race it was actually after Dover, Todd Gordon, Joey Logano's crew chief expressed his optimism in advance of Talladega saying that it, it this was the race that he fell back on. I was on this podcast last week. Uh, talking with RJ saying, I liked Joey's chances better at Kansas for advancement, but lo and behold, he had a, a banner day at Talladega despite his car looking worse for wear and finishing 11th in the race. Yeah, 18 stage points scored, and guess how much he is up of the cut line? By 18 points, showing you just how vital those things are, David. All right, with Talladega in the rear view, it now means all of the drafting tracks are in the rear view. I'm talking the two races at Daytona and the two races at Talladega. And that means my man David can go to work and do a lot of analyzing about what we saw this year in terms of the raw speed, the central speed at these tracks, and what it meant toward results, what it meant toward success. Uh, David, how do you analyze this now that we have four data points from the season? What did it all mean having the, a fast car at a plate track, or I'm sorry, not a plate track, at a super speedway? What did it exactly mean? Does it translate to pure success? These are tapered spacers, Alan. <laughs> Come on now, get her. Uh, you know, I'm probably in the minority of people who analyze speed at drafting tracks and think that there is some importance to it. And I think there was. You just have to look to see it and then and maybe determine whether it was all worth it. But 
The four fastest cars on drafting tracks in 2019 belonged to, in order, Alex Bowman, William Byron, Kyle Larson, and Chase Elliott. All four were Chevrolets. Three of those were from Hendrick Motorsports. They ranked 4th, 7th, 18th, and 3rd in points accrued, Hmm. the third belonging to Chase Elliott. Elliott was also the only race winner of that bunch. Both Bowman and Byron earned second place finishes, and Larson's best finish was seventh. Uh, he had a, had a much uh, faster looking car at Talladega than, uh, than what he showed, uh, was caught up in, in one of those early wrecks. But Alan, I'm curious. I want to know where you fall. You attend these races. You, uh, you have a liking for them to some degree. Does having, a fast car on a drafting track mean anything to you? Uh, honestly, not really. I mean, I just because I think these tracks become more of a game of skill and positioning, right? I mean, we see so much of that about the runs, about who may be behind you, who's pushing, uh, who may be your tandem partner. I know speed can put you up there. Speed is obviously is what is what makes you a player at the end of these races. But I think unlike the intermediates where a fast car can put you in a different zip code, it's just not the definition. It's just not how these races are run. So while it can give you something of an advantage, I don't think it does, it does little to really, really help you. I mean, that's just my perception. Um, maybe you can, can argue me on there, but I think fast speed correlates more to good finishes, but I think the driver and circumstances matter so much more on these tracks that raw speed doesn't seem to factor in as much, at least from my perspective. That, that's what I see on the racetrack because when, when I think of a plate race, or I'm sorry, whatever, when I think of a super speedway race, I automatically think of who are the drivers that are good at this type of stuff rather than which cars are the fastest. You know what I mean? I think of the Denny Hamlins and the Brad Keselowskis rather than the raw speed of a Chevy. You know, the two drivers I just named are in Chevys. And so I think that just shows you where my mind automatically goes at these tracks. Yeah, it's more personal than mechanical, I think, for you, and I think a lot of people think that way. Alan, this week on The Athletic, I looked into the drafting track races of the stage racing era. I was curious. I think there there may be a correlation between having the fastest car on a drafting track and scoring, I don't know, a, a commensurate amount of stage points, and In the relationship between having the fastest car and earning stage points, here is what transpired over the last three years. Mm -hmm. In 11 of the 12 races on drafting tracks, the driver with the fastest car in the race ranked better in points earned than his race result. The only outlier was Ryan Blaney in the 2017 Daytona 500. Uh, And in fairness, uh, one of uh, the ones I am counting was David Reagan this summer in Daytona. He scored one point. The winner of the race was Justin Haley, ineligible, uh, and scored zero points, but that was a weird race. Only three drivers with the fastest car finished in the top 10 in a drafting track race. How about that? Hmm. Seven drivers with the fastest car ranked in the top 10 for points. Kurt Busch had the fastest car Three times during this span, he finished 28th in the summer race at Daytona in 2017, 26th in the 2018 Daytona 500. He was uh, bidding for a repeat win. And he finished 14th in the second Talladega race of 2018. His point rankings for those races were 19th, 16th, 
and 4th, huh. which means they were increases of 9, 10, and 10 spots up the running order, just thanks to how he finished the stages. Uh, a lot has been made about stages. Rewarding points before a race comes to an end is polarizing. This is not something that racing purists will prefer, but the stage points on a drafting track actually brings balance back to the good drafters, the drivers that come to mind for you, Alan. Those using ingenuity on drafting tracks are rewarded, whereas previously that wasn't always the case. It was more of, and I don't like to use this term, crapshoot. Now there is at least a lifeline for these teams taking Daytona and Talladega seriously. No team has a fast car by accident, not even David Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, but now for the most part, those efforts are being rewarded. I, I kind of like that. I don't know how I feel about stage points in general, but I do like the fact that good drafting track performers can at least take something away. Yeah, it sort of mitigates a bad day. And we saw, I think, your example with Brad Keselowski at Talladega just a few days ago, uh, despite the crash, scored a lot of points. And that's a product of maybe his speed, but also obviously his talent and being a good at these drafting tracks. I think you're onto something. Yeah, and I think that has made uh, these races a little bit more palatable. Look, if you talk to a crew chief in the garage, you're going to get mixed opinions about Daytona and Talladega. And it's not, uh, it's not this old hat hatred of the race. It's, eh, a lot of what I do doesn't really matter. And crew chiefs want what they do to matter. They work very hard. All of these guys on these teams work very hard on their cars. They want their input to have ramifications within the race. And now there's a better path to that. It might not be in the traditional race result, but Take Joey Logano, for instance. It was the fastest car at Talladega. It finished 11th, but came away with second-place points. Interesting stuff, as always. Goodbye, 2019 Drafting Tracks. We will see you again in 2020 at the Daytona 500. Next up on this edition of Positive Regression, maybe one of the most important discussions we will have here on this podcast. David, I think it's part of you know why you exist here in the motorsports world. Perception versus ability. You wrote a great article for The Athletic this week talking about the perception we have of some drivers versus their documented ability or what their ability could be. And some of the examples you used, or the big example you used, was John Hunter Nemechek. The perception we have of him versus the ability that he shows on paper. Where did this, what sparked this idea first of all, and why John Hunter for the prime example? John Hunter Nemechek has accomplished a lot in ways that should give him a cult following like Ross Chastain has, or garner him serious consideration for a Cup Series ride. And from what I've been able to tell, his name has come up nowhere. He is not in the rumor mill. Uh, I talked with him about this. I talked with his father, Joe, about this, about the, the reality of their situation not necessarily matching the perception of John Hunter's ability. And look, on paper, his ability is good. He's long been able 
to score his own track position regardless of his surroundings. But now he's beginning to do things that most drivers simply can't. Alan, there are three drivers with 10 or more restarts in the Xfinity series this year who achieved net positional gains. They are Kyle Busch, AJ Allmendinger, and John Hunter Nemechek. That's, that's a, that's a, that's rare air. Also, across 130 Xfinity series and truck series races at non-drafting paved ovals across the last three years, there have been just seven winners with vehicles ranked outside the top 10 in year-long central speed. Only one of those seven is a repeat winner, and that is John Hunter Nemechek. Allen drivers are evaluated on the perception of ability, not always actual ability. Winners of Xfinity and truck races most often have race-winning cars at their disposal. Consider the big three in the Xfinity series, Christopher Bell, Tyler Reddick, Cole Custer. They're all phenomenally talented. I'm not going to take anything away from them. They're also competing for Cup Series teams in the Xfinity series. Drivers who don't typically win but gain the notice of team decision makers do so with moments. Uh, I talked about Ross Chastain. He had five years worth of strong passing numbers. Nobody cared about that until he got in a Chip Ganassi car and proved a good passer could also win races. He had to connect the dots for everybody. Matt DiBenedetto always offered good stuff. I think he's been a revelation this year on restarts. But for the most part, he's the same guy he was last year when he was at Go Fast Racing. He just now has a car capable of running in the top 15. And guess what? He's a fixture in the top 15. Nemechek's car currently ranks 15th in speed in the Xfinity series, which is a top-heavy series separated by teams with Cup Series affiliations. Does he have a realistic shot to win any race? No, of course he doesn't. Thus, he should be evaluated with that in mind. And in talking with him to his own assertion, he believes in order to advance to the Cup Series, he has to win. Never mind the fact that he does a lot of things very well. It seems what we've seen recently, drivers getting hired, they either have to be bona fide winners in very fast cars, or they just happen to have these moments that win the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah, and how much of that is sponsor-driven in terms of – we've talked about this with Ryan Priest before. I mean, impressive is taking a 21st Johnny Davis car and finishing 11th with it or, you know, overachieving throughout the entire course of a year. That is impressive. What is sexy is getting in a Joe Gibbs car and taking the checkered flag and having everybody talk about you, NBC, Fox, myself included. And I'm just as guilty on this on the media side of what we focus on, but – as you've said before, sponsors think winning is sexy no matter the circumstances, not necessarily the overachieving and overperformance you maybe have been doing for years. And I think that's been the case with Brian Priest, Ross Chastain. It, you're showing it with your work there in terms of that John Hunter Nemechek is doing it. He just doesn't have that moment yet, right, for a sponsor to pick up on, it seems, even though he does have wins. Yeah, and look, Ryan Priest is a great case study I, I I think he'd, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm going to think it's probably harder to to put JD Motorsports on your back 
and run close to the top 10 with it. I mean, Ross Chastain did heavy lifting with that team as well. That should have been the signal, not getting into a car that's already won races this season and winning races with it. And that's what Priest did. And that's what got him attention. It's just a, it's backwards, right? It's, it's a philosophy. And the narrative is one thing. You and me and, and others, we're in the peanut gallery for a reason, but within the industry, that's where it shouldn't be broken. That's the, the part that really makes you question what's going on here? Because some of this, eh, some of this isn't adding up. I mean, even, even look at, um, Ross Chastain, uh, recently he, he's, he's risen to prominence. His passing numbers, scroll through motorsportsanalytics.com and see them for yourself. Uh, he has, for the most part, always been a strong passer. In terms of production and results getting, he's something of a late bloomer, and it strikes me as odd that he had to take a step down in competition this year from Xfinity to trucks in order to win races prove himself a championship contender in a lower series in order to gain steam in the cup series rumor mill. At this point, if I'm Brett Moffitt, the guy going toe to toe with Chastain for the truck series championship, I'm looking around and asking what the hell? <laughs> because Chastain is the same age to some degree. He's in, he's in a prospect stratosphere unto himself with a record that it's good, but it's not like it hasn't been met by numerous other drivers. Chastain hasn't done anything we haven't already seen before. I, I like him just fine. He's good. Statistically, he's solid. But I find the interest in him for these reasons, compared to the lack of interest in others who are similar to him, a little mind-boggling. Isn't that weird where their perception comes in and our perception of him as a winner, as a great driver, all these things that he is as an aggressive guy, you know, as an entertainer out there, things we've come and I've, you know, foisted upon him as well. I'm again, I'm just as guilty as this this year in covering the truck series, but it, it is interesting how that perception has changed of him, even if his abilities have not necessarily increased, not to say he's always been a quality driver but the perception of him has changed with these checkered flags. Yeah, and that's, I think back to, there are guys like uh, Clint Boyer and Michael McDowell, and they've uh, they've gone on the record and talked about the moment they got discovered. And it, it, it seemed so, I, I don't know, happenstance. Someone just stumbles upon them, sees them once, and that's it. And that just shouldn't be how drivers are found. It shouldn't take random moments of brilliance when we know that sustained success is probably the best indicator of future success, right? That we, we're, we are, we are smarter collectively as a people, but we still gravitate towards the, the shiny object. It, it's, it's, I called it earlier 24 hour news cycle. And it certainly seems that way. Chastain's been in the news. Is it is it lazy owners? Is it lazy GMs, if you will? Or is it still just about the money where you can be as bright of a star as you want in the 24-hour news cycle, but you have to have a big check coming with you? I mean, does it really come down to that? Or is there is there something lacking in the, uh, in the talent search department in some of these teams? So if you're an owner and you are going to earmark pre-existing 
sponsorship, whether it be through leverage, business to business. Um, think of Ryan Priest with Tad Geschichter. Tad Geschichter had all of that sponsorship in place in advance of Ryan Priest uh, joining JTG Racing. If you are going to put a driver in your car, you want to have the majority of the boxes checked as as knowns, right? If you are if you are a talent scout, you are in the speculation business. You don't know for sure. You just hope that you have enough evidence that you think you're sure. And for whatever reason, no one wanted to trust that Ryan Priest in a JD Motorsports car performing above his head was any good. They had to see him go prove that he's a race winner in a car that does nothing but win races. Um, it's, it is backwards logic. It was weird that it took that for him to get the ride. He's deserving of the ride, but it came about two years too late. And I'm not sure why that is. So with John Hunter, the situation he's in, he has the 15th fastest car in the series. It's not bad. He made the playoffs, but he's not a realistic championship contender. And winning a race with the 15th fastest car is very hard. It's nearly impossible. Cole Custer's not going to be able to do that. Tyler Reddick's not going to be able to do that. Chris Bell would not be able to do that. And all three of them are very talented. It took them getting into cup cars to have the seasons like they're having is John Hunter Nemechek going to have that opportunity? I, I, I mean, I don't know, but it seems to just drag out his development even longer. Maybe he, maybe he is ready for the Cup Series because these numbers are rock solid. We talked about checking off boxes. He checks off a lot of boxes. So I don't know why perception has become this, but it's out of whack. Yeah, and look, if you love storylines, I'm a storyteller. I love the storyline of a young John Hunter Nemechek on the family team with lesser equipment. When he was in that truck last year, I mean, I mean, fighting, being aggressive, knowing every single of those restarts and laps and being aggressive and not afraid. Uh, remember the Cole Custer deal up in Canada when, you know, it was him versus Custer and, and how much more that win meant to him and his team going forward. And you would think the perception and the storyline behind it uh, you know, it would gain a little steam or whatever, just having that aggression. I mean, look, I'm not a team owner with billions of dollars to spend, but that's the type of driver I would like, right? I mean, I want an exciting driver who's going to go out and do it and be aggressive. And it seems like one, like John Hunter Nemechek, is sitting there to be, to, to, to help your organization. But this is racing and there's someone, so many other weird factors, unfortunately. Yeah, I think if if we can just get to a point where his name is actually seriously in the rumor mill for consideration for some of these cup rides, then we'll know that we're turning the corner. But so far, crickets, uh, just nothing. And there have been uh, openings, some prominent, some less so, um, all of whom could probably benefit from a driver with the statistical profile like John Hunter Nemechek has. Uh, and I'm not sure what the, this disparity is there, but, uh, it's, it's curious. Interesting as always. It's clearly not enough people or not enough the right people. Uh, cause I know we have a lot of listeners. So get this episode of positive regression to the GMs, to the team owners, and let's see if we can sway some opinions. Just at least open their eyes in terms of perception versus actual ability. I want to see, uh, I think it would be eye-opening for some people out there. So let's see what we can do, David. And as always, let's go on to our Kansas preview, the preview of the upcoming weekend for both Xfinity and Cup. Uh, it's the cutoff for the Cup Series playoff out in Kansas. And David, we've been there before. 
once this season. It was a night race. It got crazy at the end. What should we take away from that first race that we can maybe apply or think about when trying to preview Sunday's race out in Kansas? The first thing for me that came to mind was that the restarts were uh, out of hand. <laughs> and in going back and reviewing the stats, I'm not sure they were that out of hand. I think I've actually keyed in on why they looked as bonkers as they did. But the outside groove was the preferred groove. Let's let's be upfront about that. 75% retention rate, while the inside was the non-preferred with a 54% rate. The gains on the outside were minimal. The losses on the inside were big. 73 positions lost across 56 attempts from inside the first seven rows. Hmm. I believe this reflects what we've seen this year with this rules package. I don't know why, but the spring race there was the first race where I was struck by the difference this rules package was trying to provide. I I don't believe I'm alone in this. I mean, I could be alone in this, but we've seen crew chiefs make two-tire versus four-tire calls a bit differently uh, over, over the summer and into the early fall. The number of two-tire calls are up during green flag pit cycles and down during caution flag stops on tracks where tire wear is minimal. The diminished acceleration on restarts means it's easy, eh, easier, I'll, I'll be safe, for those with four tires to catch those with no tires or two tires in clean air, which is to say the dramatic drops on restarts that we saw at Kansas in the spring should be fewer this time around because teams are smarter. We'll still see gamblers, crew chiefs will get a little weird when trying to win, but on the whole, we'll see less gambles and calls made with a little more supporting evidence. So I I don't know that we're going to see the chaotic restarts just because we're going back to this track a second time with this rules package. People have gotten smarter. Yeah, we had eight restarts in that spring race. Uh, more recently, we went to Las Vegas. The Cup Series did in the playoff, obviously, and similar tracks. Uh, but that, that that Las Vegas race, David, just a few weeks ago, uh, the first two stages went caution free, and so did the final seventy-two laps. So where we had you know a bunch of you know you could say craziness at the Kansas Spring Race. More recently, at a similar track in Las Vegas, it was a bit more tame. Do you think it could lend itself more to that? This is a great talking point. Uh, I don't know the correct answer here. I'd be on the pit box if I did. <laughs> but the but the spring race at Kansas was effectively a short run race. Vegas most recently was a long run race. I'd say Kansas this weekend will skew conservative because playoff time isn't the time to uh, mess around with tires to the point that they're popping. It isn't when we see drivers inclined to disregard their awareness and take risks on the track. This is why I liked the 19 teams approach to the playoff opener in Vegas. Yes, that race was crazy a year ago, but even then that, that smacked of an outlier. Now it should be said it might not behoove them. I'm going to use an RJ craft word to set up uh, based on the race itself, maybe just set up around the driver. Let's take Ryan Blaney, for example. He's locked into the next round, but he sure could use another win. 
he's such a good short run driver and restarter, the second best preferred groove restarter right now, actually, that maybe Jeremy Bullins can just let the short runs go. Say, I'm not worried about him. My driver's got that handled. Perhaps his is a situation where a focus on long runs makes the most sense. And the reverse could be true for Kyle Larson and Chad Johnson, also already locked into round three. Larson is a top five passer without being a top tier restarter for the whole of the season. The long runs have suited him better this year. The short runs have not. Those numbers have trended up recently, but I want to go with the number that is solid. They might rely on Larson's long run ability and consider a focus on short runs for their car. Both Blaney and Larson are good drivers. They are luxuries for their teams, but not all luxuries are equal. The, the luxury they provide is completely different from one another. That might be what dictates their races where absent of stage wins and an outright race win is inconsequential to the rest of the season. If they don't get, if they finish second in a stage and second in a race, it's not intransferable to <laughs> round three. So there's a, there's one goal for them. I, I think we're going to see a number of different approaches for this race. I think that might be what makes this uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, looking forward to it. And as always, what do we what do we want to see? Because there will be the different approaches of the Kyle Larsons and Ryan Blaney's of the world because they can lend themselves to that. And then we have four drivers who maybe all need a win. We we talked about it earlier in the episode, but 18 points uh not easy to uh overcome, especially against the competition you're doing it against at a track like Kansas. So David, what do you want to see? On Sunday. Uh, I'm going to leave the drama to you. I'm going to keep things simple. I want to see who is legitimately good because this race on a moderate 1.5 mile track represents the last closest data point to Homestead. The results of this race will impact betting odds for the season finale, to be sure. But it's this race that will provide us clarification on guys like Martin Truex and Denny Hamlin, both of whom lacked speed at Kansas in the spring as to whether they can realistically compete for a championship at Homestead if they make it into and out of round three. All right. And I will take the drama card because that's what I want, David. I want uh, I want one of the bottom four to go out there and win it and really shake things up, specifically because I am loyal to the Positive Regression podcast, I want the Alex Bowman story to play itself out. Because early on, David, you identified Alex Bowman as someone obviously super fast and potentially uh, really good at these type of tracks, at the Kansases of the world, the, the Vegases of the world, and he has performed there. We saw what he did, kind of got schooled at the end of the first Kansas race. I think he has evolved. We saw him win Chicago. And at some point in midsummer, you identified him as a potential championship four candidate. If he could just get there based on tracks like this, I want to see that play out just so I could point to everybody that we have an awesome podcast and that we called it. So I'm just calling it, David. I want Alex Bowman to go out there and win this race. Cool. I would. I mean, <laughs> he is, he is going to have to have that race that we talked about. It, it's going to have to be just go out, crush the field leave no doubt, and probably win the thing. I mean, he he is the guy that Joey Logano has 18 points on right now. 
it is so tough to anticipate any of those guys above the cut line having bad days. You cannot plan for that. So it's it's going to be uh, if if one of these bottom four guys advance. You said drama, but I think it's just going to be pretty straightforward. If they don't take the race by the scruff of its neck, uh, they are not moving on. And uh, that's, you know, simple, uh, simply said, but uh, very difficult in execution. And we do have to point out, I mean, three of the four drivers trying to get in, Chase Elliott, Alex Bowman, Clint Boyer, those three drivers were in the top five in Kansas in the spring. So there is potential for a little shakeup and drama on Sunday. Looking forward to it. And David, we have been uh, really promoting and really succeeding with the Positive Regression Scouting Network uh, for the past few months, and we have another submission this week. Who do we have? Brendan Wilhite is scouting Haley Deegan, 18-year-old Canon West driver from Temecula, California. Brendan writes, Haley Deegan had a quiet September. She only ran one race, a September 28th K&N West race at Meridian Speedway in Idaho, the site of her first career K&N win last season. This year's race was very different uh, for Deegan. However, she started second, but after being involved in three separate caution-causing accidents in a, an ugly race that her uh, Bill McAnally Racing stablemate Derek Krause won, um, a tough go for her. Alan, um, let's talk about this. The, the K&N East series is wrapped for the season. Deegan ranked 17th of 18 drivers in production and equal equipment rating. But let's circle back. Let, let's talk about uh, moments and perception. She's had moments. Alan, put on your team owner hat. Do you sign Deegan now in hopes that these moments mean something for the future or... Do you wait for consistent good finishes to come? I take the money and I run, David. I take the money because, <laughs> look, look, this is racing. Money buys opportunity, and it always will. As long as you have some money behind you, you will at least have the opportunity to go out there and continue to improve yourself, right? So there will be uh, – if there are dollars – there will be Haley Deegan on the track, or really any driver on the track. But if we're talking this specifically, I would uh, I would take the money, I would take the press, and and hope that her improvement shows itself there out on the track. Uh, that's not what I want to hear, David. When I hear you say she ranked 17th out of 18 in terms of production equal equipment rating, I do not like that. But if I'm an owner, I take a shot at someone who could be uh, clearly transcendent in terms of marketability and the money that would be behind her. Uh, I think you'd be foolish not to as an owner, uh, but that's why I am not a millionaire nor a billionaire because maybe I'm thinking wrong. What do you think? Well, I think you're shilling for monster energy here, <laughs> so I think you're well on your way to uh, becoming a, a millionaire. Uh, look, I mean, that's that's the goal of many, but uh, I will I will err on the the the, the smart side of things. Uh, I I need to see consistency. I need to be able to uh, quantify whether a driver is consistently productive. There are only 38, 40 spots uh, in the Cup Series, right? I mean, there is little to no room for error when getting these rides. In theory. You need to be an airtight race car driver uh, in order to occupy one of those seats. Um, she's not there yet, as are uh, not many other, not many teenagers are. Uh, I think we'll probably be talking about Chandler Smith sometime next week. He might be the closest thing, but 
um, we don't see that too often. So I would, um, I'd, I'd wait it out. I mean, I know a lot of people are excited about her, but I, I just want the consistency. All right. And we appreciate the submission as always. And David, tell them, tell people how they can get involved in the scouting network because, uh, it is a cool thing that we, you know, we, we have our, the list, our loyal listeners and now getting them involved in the episodes and in scouting. I think it's a really cool deal you've come up with. Yeah, for those interested in joining the Positive Regression Scouting Network, you can head to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com to sign up. You may request a young driver or we can assign you one. He or she might become your new favorite driver. You never know. Regardless, we love getting our listeners focused on the future, uh, seeking out new talent. So if you fancy yourself a talent scout, please sign up. Uh, we want to hear from you. Absolutely. We want to hear about someone maybe that we don't know who has not crossed our path whatsoever. Uh, a lot of local tracks, a lot of local tr- short track supporters out there. If you are one of them and you have your eye on someone that could be the next big thing, uh, scout them for us. We definitely want to hear about it. So good stuff. Good idea, David. Another good episode of Positive Regression. Do not forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you get your podcasts, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff really does help this podcast gain some pos- uh, some vis- visibility in this world, and your help in spreading the word is so appreciated. Uh, the audience has grown throughout the season, which is such a cool thing. We just want to make sure we are delivering something of value to you for your fantasy teams and all that. So uh, your word, your help in spreading the word is so appreciated. If you have questions, we love to answer them. You know we do. So reach out to us on Twitter at PosRed. Pod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you are a hard worker. What are you working on this week? Well, we've already talked about the John Hunter Namachek article uh, that is posted right now on The Athletic, but later this week, I'm going to take a look into Kyle Larson's passing. That has been his calling card ever since he walked into NASCAR. Uh, it took a hit earlier this year. He had some adjustment, maybe, to uh, this new rules package, but He's figured it out, and I'm wondering if he's figured it out in time to make a serious championship run. So that will be on The Athletic later this week. Check that out. Looking forward to that. And no truck race this weekend, but still plenty of uh, racing action out there in Kansas. Race day on on FS1 will air on Sunday, so make sure you watch that. Get Your race day starts with race day. And check out my Twitter feed this week because our latest ride to work with Daniel Suarez, and it is a it's a fun one going over his journey, his cars, his nicknames, which I didn't realize he had. Uh, it's a good discussion, and those pieces always come out so much fun, so well. Uh, a lot of hard workers over there at FS1, and so the latest edition, Ride to Work with Daniel Suarez, is uh, aired on Race Hub this week, so check it out on my Twitter feed or wherever you get that stuff. Uh, it'd be much appreciated, and it's been so good to be back after I took my week off. David, I, I thank you for letting me have a week off. Again, I thank uh, RJ for filling in for us, RJ Craft over at NASCAR.com and all the hard work he does. But as always, thank you so much for listening to Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. Have an awesome weekend, everybody.
To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a nature show host. In a native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got Geico, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. Geico will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. Geico. Great service without all the drama.